Well, we continue on this morning, working our way through 1 Samuel, looking this morning at 1 Samuel 16, as we heard read. My sermon is entitled, This Is He. The wildly popular novel, The Hunger Games, and movies derived from it, one of which is in movie theaters right now, tell the tale of Katniss Everdeen. Katniss and her family lived in an obscure region of the post-apocalyptic Pan Am, where poverty and economic hardship were the norm. Katniss, the protagonist of the story, was skilled in the use of a primitive weapon, a bow and arrow, and she rises to the pinnacles of power in her country through her bravery, compassion, and determination. It is a story that chronicles the rise of an individual from relative obscurity and abject poverty to undeniable importance and unrivaled influence. A story not dissimilar from the history of David, the son of Jesse and a man after God's own heart. The section of 1 Samuel that we enter into this morning is the history of David's ascension to prominence in Israel. Now, if you recall, chapters 1 through 7 recounted the birth, childhood, and rise to judgeship of Samuel. Chapters 8 through 15 narrated the transition from Samuel leading the people to Saul becoming king, from Israel being a nation that was led by judges to one that had a covenantal monarchy. And from chapter 16 through 31, we will see the slow but dignified decline of Samuel, and we will continue to see the descent and deterioration of Saul. The main focus, however, is the ascendancy of David as Israel's king. Psalm 109, verse 39, declares that God will raise his people up, in the words of the psalmist, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow. These three difficulties, grief, Oppression and evil surface in 1 Samuel 16. God, ever caring for his people, raises his people in chapter 16 out of these afflictions. And he does so by providing them a king. Not the king that they want, but the king that he desires. We might say that the main idea of this chapter is that God's king is God's remedy for the grief, oppression, and evil faced by God's people. Point number one, the end of Samuel's grief, verse 1 through 4a. God's provision of his king puts an end to Samuel's grief. Samuel, as we heard, was in Ramah, five miles north of Jerusalem. Samuel had retreated there, his hometown, 
after his confrontation with Saul and after his execution of Agag, king of the Amalekites. That episode clearly took its toll on Samuel. We read that Samuel is grieving. Samuel's sorrow was due to the rebellion of Saul against Yahweh and due to Yahweh's rejection of Israel's first king. And I'm sure that Samuel grieved over the prospects of the nation of Israel, the nation that he had served since he was a young boy. It wasn't only sorrow that burdened Samuel. He was oppressed by the fear of Saul, fearful, I'm sure, that he might face retribution for his public treatment of Saul, for his own refusal to capitulate to the king's wishes. In regards to God's command that Samuel go to Bethlehem, Samuel asks, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Yet despite his fear, despite his grief, Samuel has received his orders. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. What I think we need to note this morning from these first couple verses is that God has provided for his people a king, a king that will be his king. He says, for myself, I have provided a king. And I think we also need to note that in the provision of a king, Samuel finds the strength to overcome his grief. He didn't remain frozen in fear or paralyzed by sorrow. And unlike Saul, Samuel responds to God's commandments with faithful obedience. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. As we consider God's provision of a king and the effect of that provision on the experience of grief, we have good cause this morning to consider King Jesus and to consider how God's provision of our king impacts our sorrow. The prophet Isaiah foretold of Yahweh's servant king, of whom it could be said, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53, verse 4. And Jesus in his own time would affirm that this prophecy is fulfilled, declaring, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's from John 16, verse 20 through 22. So from Isaiah and from John, we learn that the provision of King Jesus is the remedy for our sorrow and grief. We should note that in Isaiah, King Jesus' grief-bearing is connected to his sin-bearing. 
His grief bearing is linked to his death on the cross. Many of you will know that passage in Isaiah and you'll know that immediately following the reference to Jesus carrying our sorrows, we read, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. In John, the transformation of sorrow to joy also pertains to King Jesus and his death, but even more importantly, to his resurrection. The work he would do at the cross would be confirmed and shown to be accepted by God as evidenced by his resurrection. And so the provision of God's king is the remedy for our sorrow and grief. Don't get me wrong this morning, on this side of eternity, we will be sorrowful and we will continue to grieve, yet these things, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, the King, are temporary. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, as I was considering this and preparing my sermon, I came across an article from the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF. And I read in this article of a young woman who was grieving. The author, older brother to this younger woman, observed that her grief would not relent quickly. And it lasted considerably longer than she expected. The older brother described the situation and the all too common, and I hope well intended, encouragement that we often give to those who are grieving. We encourage them to get over it. This is what the older brother wrote. I remember when my father died my younger sister, a teenager, saying that people keep telling her in time it will get better. She said, you know, I don't really want this to get better. There's a way where missing, where my missing of my dad, my loss of him, it captures the sense of how much I loved him. And the idea of getting better almost feels like I'll be more distant from him. Now, this older brother, now the executive director of CCEF, recognizes that, in his words, there was something deeply right to what this teenage young woman was trying to articulate. And as I think about Samuel and Ramah, perhaps frozen by the fear and grief of recent events, I am encouraged by his response. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. But do you see what it doesn't say there? It doesn't say his grief or his fear had ended. It doesn't say that. It said that he was obedient. And in that regard, my first point has as a title something that I'm not particularly happy about. I decided to leave it because it was evidence 
of what sometimes might be a less than helpful posture that I and perhaps you take when it comes to grief. I entitled this first point, if you remembered, the end of Samuel's grief. But here's the thing. I don't know if his grief had ended. I suspect, actually, that it hadn't ended. I suspect that he was still grieving. And yet, for Samuel, the promise of a king for God's people was enough to give him the strength to be obedient. I don't think he got over it, but it looks like he got on with it. And maybe that is a better way for us to think about grief, a better way to help our brothers and sisters who are dealing with grief. Let's not focus on getting over the grief because godly grief is part of what it means to live in a fallen world. And maybe instead of thinking about getting over it, we could think about getting on with it as we grieve because we have a mighty and merciful king. God has provided us a king, a king who loves us, a king who died for us, a king who will one day help us to get over it entirely. In that day, when he raises us from the dead, he will usher us into the presence and glory and grace of God in all its fullness. We have a glorious king, a king who in the words of our director of biblical counseling, helps us not to be stagnated in our pain and suffering, but a king who gives us the strength in the midst of those things to get up and get on with it. He is a glorious king. Now, I have mostly focused on Samuel's grief, though I said he also was dealing with fear. And I've left that till now because we see that the people in Bethlehem were dealing with fear as well. And so my second point, I've entitled The Beginning of David's Ascent. It's from verse 4b to 13. And we see that God's anointing of David as king was the beginning of his rise to the throne and a remedy for people's fear. And so we move from the town of Ramah to the town of Bethlehem, uh, a town that I know we've been thinking about a lot the last few weeks as we celebrated the birth of Christ. If you're wondering why a trip to Bethlehem would be fear-inducing for Samuel, understand that Ramah is north of Jerusalem, Bethlehem south of Jerusalem, and on that journey, he would have to pass through the town of Gibeah, and that's where Saul resided. And so his fear of Saul was real. But what's interesting is that when he arrived in Bethlehem, the people in Bethlehem were also afraid. We read in verse 4, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? I expect there were several reasons and causes for their fear. Now, first of all, Samuel was bringing a heifer with him. And one of the things I found interesting as I researched this is the elders of the city could have interpreted his bringing a heifer to mean that someone had been murdered. 
Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 1 through 9, indicates that an unsolved murder must be dealt with by the elders of a city and they must use a heifer in regards to a sacrifice and dealing with that issue. So perhaps that was the first thing that came to their mind. But a second cause, and one I think that is more likely, could have been Samuel's reputation. Do you come peaceably? Remember, Samuel had just taken a little bit earlier a sword in his hand and hacked to pieces the king of the Amalekites. That's rather an intimidating guest to entertain. And perhaps they too were thinking of Saul and what it would mean for Samuel to come in their midst as one who had crossed the king. Regardless, we do know they were trembling and fearful. Now Samuel, yes, he brought a heifer, but he brought it for reasons other than murder. He brought it because God commanded it as so. At the very least, it provided an excuse for him to go to Bethlehem should Saul find out he was going there. Further, the, the sacrifice of a heifer was a, a time of worship and it required that the people who participated consecrate themselves. And though I don't think anyone knew what Samuel was going to do, that he was going to anoint someone as king, the fact that those people would consecrate themselves would be appropriate. And so we see that God provides a king for Israel through this anointing of oil. Even though Samuel didn't really know what was happening, he inspected the, the sons of Jesse. He thought on a couple occasions, this must be the one that God has for us. He was a little bit confused, I think, after all the sons were paraded in front of him and God had not told them that any of them would be king. And so he asked, is there any more sons? And the answer was yes. The last son could be found among the sheep that he was watching over. We heard Amy read, Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, just as the provision of God's king was the remedy for grief, so too the provision of a king for Israel was the remedy for the fear of the people and for the fear of Samuel. Now, this is interesting. God chose for himself an unlikely son from Bethlehem to be his king who would remedy the fear of his people. Does that sound familiar to you? Can you think of another unlikely son who was born in Bethlehem, who God would provide as a king to subdue the fears of his people? Remember, in Jesus' time, the people were incredulous that Jesus did miracles and did mighty works. They said, is not this the carpenter the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? 
He was an unlikely son, an unlikely son of Mary and Joseph, a son born in Bethlehem, a son who God would provide for his people to remedy their fears. God's provision of a king who was a shepherd was the antidote for the fear of his people. Think of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 proclaims the fear-quelling power of a divine shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus would later declare himself to be that divine shepherd. The shepherd king who would deal with their fears. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus proclaims, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so again, the provision of God's king, Jesus, the son of God, is a remedy for his people's fear. And again, it's his death in which we find this remedy. The good shepherd is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, John 10, 11. Further, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is through the death and resurrection that the shepherd king of Bethlehem deals with the fear of his people. And as we think about the fears that we have, that we experience in a fallen world, that you may be experiencing even as you sit there this morning, as you think and reflect on those things, we would do well to think about our king. Our king who has told us to fear not because we have great value in his father's eyes, Matthew 10, 31. And to fear not, only believe in him, Mark 5, 36. Do you remember when the shepherd king came to Jerusalem and he fulfilled a prophecy. And that prophecy was this. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Luke 12, 15. It's because of this shepherd king, King Jesus, that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, Romans 8, 15. And we indeed have the spirit indwelling us if we believe in this king, King Jesus. And if we believe in how he has fulfilled his promises and the promises of his father. One of those promises was that he would never leave us or forsake us. And therefore, because we have the spirit, the presence of of God with us, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Hebrews 13, 6. And John tells us, again, at the end of days, 
because of this shepherd king, King Jesus, and because of the salvation that he has given us, when he comes to judge the world, we can have confidence because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18. King Jesus is the remedy for grief. King Jesus is the remedy for fear. He's also the remedy for evil. This is my last point. The continuation of Saul's rejection, verse 14 through 23. Even Saul's continued decline is helped by God's provision of his king. Now, we may not be surprised that the provision of a king was helpful to Samuel in regards to his grief. We may not be surprised that the provision of a king was helpful for Samuel and the Bethlehemites in regards to the fear, but it is a bit surprising that God's provision of a king is a remedy for the torment of evil experienced by Saul. Saul has been rejected. It's clearly stated. Perhaps no more more clearly stated than it is in verses 13 and 14 where we read, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And we read of the affliction of evil that Saul experienced. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, uh, from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now this word torment speaks of the impact of evil to the point of incapacitation. Now Saul's servants look for a remedy. They need a remedy for this evil affliction that Saul is experiencing and for some reason they think that what's gonna do it is someone who can play the lyre or the harp. And one of their servants, we're not told how, one of their servants is aware that there is a young shepherd in Bethlehem, a son of Jesse, who's pretty good at playing the lyre, playing the harp. On top of that, he's known to be a brave and skillful individual in battle. He is discreet in his speech. He is admirable in his presence. And most important, it is known that the Lord is with him. Now what we see again in this last point is that as Saul secures and receives the help of David, as he receives the king that God has provided for Israel, though he won't be king for a little while, nevertheless, David is a remedy against evil. Even the evil that Saul experiences. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. The provision of God's king means victory over evil. And so as we look once more to Jesus, to God's king of kings, we see that when God provided the son, he was also providing a remedy for evil. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Hebrews 2.14, which we just heard, tells us that it wasn't just the works of the evil one that Jesus came to destroy, but evil personified. It was the devil himself that Jesus came to destroy. Again, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. The provision of God's king is the provision of a remedy for evil. Now I have no doubt that chapter 16 of 1 Samuel along with giving us an understanding of the historical events that led to the ascension of David, and along with how it helps us to understand God and his ways, I am certain that chapter 16 of 1 Samuel is given to us to get us to think about what it means for God to provide a king for his people. We took communion this morning. Communion helps us to remember what it meant for God to provide a sacrifice for sin. But we need to remember that that sacrifice for sin rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He now sits enthroned as king at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the gospel. This is the glory of what we celebrated at the communion table this morning. It's the glory of the king that God the Father provided to his people. To his people who are subject to sorrow. To his people who are afflicted by fear. To his people who are enslaved by evil. The glory of the gospel is the glory of a king provided by God who through his death and resurrection conquers grief, conquers terror, and conquers all that is malicious and malevolent in creation. King Jesus, it must be said, is the remedy for those things. Understand this morning that he is only the remedy for those things for people who are in union with him. Union with Jesus comes through our recognition of our sin, through our rejection of our sin and our sinning, and through our placing our faith and trust in King Jesus and all that he accomplished for us. If you want to know more about that this morning, if you're not a believer, you've never repented of your sin and put your faith in God, I'd love to talk to you this morning. Our staff would love to talk to you this morning. Our elders Matter of fact, most of our congregation would love to talk to you about that this morning. Please ask if that's you. In Samuel's day, in the time of the decline of Saul, the provision of a king was a remedy for grief, for fear, and for evil. How much more is God's provision of the true and great King Jesus the remedy for our grief and our fear and the evil that we face? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we thank you for this story in 1 Samuel 16 which describes your provision of your king 
and the impact of that provision of a king in terms of the grief of the people and the fear of the people and the evil that they dealt with. I pray, Father God, that you by your spirit would help us even as we hear that story and learn the truth therein and understand more about Israel's history and King David's history and we learn about you and how you worked in the world. Would you help us, Father God, along with those good things to cast our eyes to Christ, to cast our eyes to the true and greater king that you provided, the king who died and rose again and sits at your right hand who will return one day, the king who is the remedy for our grief, for our fear, and for the evil we face. I pray this in his name. Amen.